Hey, what's up, missionaries? This is Len the Bat Tribble. I hope you will enjoy this very special edition of my show mission. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, it was maybe more like about seven or ten days ago, the Bryn Mawr Film Institute contacted Vince and I and asked us to come out and moderate a talkback for Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. We were indeed very honored to be on somebody's radar, and it was a really cool event. The Bryn Mawr Film Institute is a fantastic organization that holds film workshops, shows classic movies, independent films. They have a fantastic program that they do right outside of Philadelphia. The director there, Jacob Mazur, was top-notch, really cool very, very personable person that reached out to us and we have nothing but mad thanks and respect for everything that he and the uh, BMFI are doing out there. It was a very good talk back. It was a lot of fun and uh, we've got the audio here for you to check it out. Now, I will have to tell you that this audio is from the video of the event, so it's not a direct microphone feed so some of the audio may be a little hard to make out but I think you can make out the most of it and it was a very enjoyable talk back a lot of good questions a lot of good answers some by us some by the audience as you'll hear it was really cool a great time and um, I wanted to present it to you so enjoy peace podcast uh every wednesday the show drops as we're on this mission to review every black film that has ever been made yes including 2018 sorry to bother you directed and written by boots riley yes i wish my name was boots boots riley of the of the the classic hip-hop group the coop yes yeah out of the bay area yes most definitely uh give a, a round of applause if you enjoyed the movie charming. <laughs> I thought it was, uh, no, seriously, I thought it was like very inventive, very original, very surreal. It was um, maybe the 
best episode of the Twilight Zone I've seen in a long time. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was um, impeccably uh, acted by Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson. Yeah, yeah. And I've never seen uh, Army Hammer used better in this movie. <laughs> yeah. I liked it too. I thought it was a lot, it's a lot to unpack. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a lot to unpack. This yeah. is in, in full disclosure. This is our second time seeing it. And and I know seeing it, it again, I was, you know, trying to make a list. You, you know, you're trying to get your, your arm around it to kind of say, okay, well, what I want to talk about. And I think more than anything else, I was struck by the sense of place okay. with, with Oakland and, and just sort of this, this kind of creeping dystopia right on the fringes with the, you know, you had the, you know, if you looked over on the sides and in the back, you had the tents where people were homeless and, yeah. and you know, even uh, like Keith Stansfield's car was slowly falling apart. No, it wasn't slowly falling apart. <laughs> the man could only put 40 cents of gas in his car. Right, right. But, I mean, even that, it's funny until it's not funny. Yeah. Like, you know, I think a lot of us have kind of, you know, you know I'll take seven. Yeah. And one pump, one pump three. Right. And just, it, it kind of represented the desperation that so many of the people had throughout. Yeah. You, you know, like, you know, you kind of have, I don't know about people, like, I've had crappy jobs. And, you know, you kind of have to take a crappy job. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's the crappy job that they have with the, with the telemarketing. You have the television show where people are on just sort of getting beat up. Yeah. And you get the sense, you know, well, who would sign up for that? There are people that... <laughs> There are people that are signing up for that stuff now. Well, if you watch Bravo, well, again, it's, it's this kind of ambient desperation yeah. throughout. And then, of course, worry-free, mm. which, you, you know, I saw it as, as, as I guess, you, you know, a very on-the-nose commentary on the gig economy. And, you know, you kind of sign up for these things and, you know, you kind of fold the prison industrial complex and all these huge kind of big concepts. But it's right there. Yeah, you know. You talk about the sense of place. I felt it in that, you know. Uh, usually, when you're in a movie, watching a movie that's about like a dystopian future or something like that, right? You're you're after the climax. You're right in there, right? Or you're right at the beginning of the climax, and then, right. you know you got to go to the the next two movies to see the you see what happens. This one, you're in the midst. Of the collapse, like you said, the streets are of Oakland, Oakland, California, are pretty much bare a lot of the times. Even at and and even at night, sometimes when it is when it is full of people, it almost has like a the sense of a, the incoming Mad Max feeling. People just yeah. rolling in the streets, riding their bikes, just rolling down. Oh, riding bikes left and right in this in this joint. This um, it was. That was the place that I felt watching this the second time. And also, I thought it was very interesting to watch that beginning of a collapse of society in Oakland, in the black neighborhood. Oh, of course. Usually where you don't, right. see, you don't see it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I thought that was really, really, really dope. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's like you have that, so you, know, you have this exploitation of labor, and I noticed that in all the worry-free ads, there were all white people. Mm. Like, there were no black faces, and, you know, it's like you said, 
obviously the front lines of this desperation, the front lines of these people looking would be people of color. And yet they're not in the ads. And if you looked at Regal View, it was mostly black people, mostly, you know, Hispanic people, mostly black people, people of color. Right. So that I think you're right that this is where it starts. And and you, you got to pull in like Octavia Butler and, you know, all of this sort of Afrofuturism text and yeah. all of that because race is a huge part of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole deal with the white voice yeah. is, is just... And, and the limitations of it. Like, that's the part that I like as well, is, is the, the scene at the party where he tells them, you, use your black voice. Mm-hmm. Because I know you have one, obviously. Right. Like, you right. can't, this can't possibly be you. And everything that the black voice brings with it in this white imagination, you know, you must have shot somebody, clearly you can rap. All of that stuff. So no matter how much he does with the Patton Oswald voice on the phone, it's still at the end of the day, this is how you're seen. Yeah. It, it's um some of that was on the nose and then some of it was like real subtle. Like I dug, especially in that party scene where he, he's rapping. And right. like, first of all, he can't rap. Right. And he proved that he can't rap. Um, and, but it, it, he can't rap but then he just goes to nigga shit, nigga shit, nigga shit and everybody's like oh they were just like waiting for waiting for oh permission nigga shit, nigga shit yes, right, 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 yes. right, right. so much so that he says it two times at the end and then shuts up but they're already into the cadence they're ready with the nigga shit so they're waiting on me nigga shit, nigga shit well, once it's out, it's out. Yeah, you know, once it's out. And I liked Omari Hardwick in yeah. those scenes because yeah. he's quiet. And how about that Omari Hardwick? Exactly, exactly. And if you're familiar with Omari Hardwick from Power on Stars, he's playing totally against type. Right. Except at the end when his black voice comes out. Right, right. And and that's his real voice. Yeah. And you get this. And a real moment. And, and it's a real moment between these two men. And you get the sense that he understands what just happened and how it affected him. Right. Yeah. And, this, and, and he also understands that, you know, um, this, I think, is what he has been trying. He's been trying right. to get to this point. But he can't get there. But in his own way, in his own weird type of way, just like Danny Glover schooled him earlier... He's trying to school him about this opportunity. Right. You know, right. Trying to be that voice in the voice of his ear. Right. How'd you like the way it looked? How'd you like you know this Boots Boots Riley's first film? How do you think he did? I thought he did a, a, an amazing job. I do say I never need to see Terry Crews with hair again. <laughs> <laughs> that was very may have been one of the more disturbing things in this movie. Yeah, but it was a good detail. It was a good team, yeah. Especially because he had a ball spot in the back, and he he looked like he was beaten down. Yes, and did you notice that it, his family they all worked out? Yeah, they were all they were all muscular. Well, it's it's, it's those details throughout. Yeah, you no, know. I thought the movie was actually just uh, it was a, a beautiful movie, just through and through. Those nice visual touches, nice inventive directing touches. You mm-hmm. know, um, it almost to a degree reminded me a little bit of like. Uh, like a comic book sometimes because there will be a scene that happens at Regal View and uh, 
the character will say something to somebody and then it cuts to quote unquote the next panel right. which is actually at another location where he's talking about you want to stuff your mouth with all of those french fries right right just the transitions from yeah, scene yeah, to scene yeah. how did you do with the, the conceit of the, the calls and then he you know he shows up in people's houses oh I thought that was that was really cool that yeah was, that was really really inventive and dope especially when he's you know there with the, the, the man is sitting there on, on the bidet yeah <laughs> we've all know we've all made that face right 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 I think it's called the bidet face it is the bidet face the, the bidet face yeah <laughs> yes, yes no I thought I thought everything about this movie was just like really inventive. it doesn't give you the like if you told me this was Boots Riley, like tenth film, I would have believed it. Right. Like, it's, it's it's first film. I mean, there's some things you could nitpick about it, but I mean, you're just engrossed in the movie. You don't. You just go along for the ride. Right. Right. I think when I saw it the first time, the the horse people uh, kind of threw me off. Just a bit. Just a wee bit. Is anybody else throwing off by the horse people? Yeah. <laughs> somebody in the back is like, yeah. Why was it? Like. <laughs> Excuse me? The Uncanny Valley. Right, the, the Uncanny Valley. But I think, I know, but I think when you see it again and you know it's coming, yeah, it actually works a bit more organically. Like, okay. like seeing it again, I was like, okay, that kind of works a little. I mean, it's right. absurd, but it's the absurdity of it. And, and, you know, full disclosure, I'm just super cynical about just everything. <laughs> so, you, you know, part of it is, like, part of the, the conversation I've been having, and honestly, me and my wife's like, is it a dystopia if this is actually how things are? <laughs> like, does that mean it, like, it's just like this? Mm. And, you know, there's no question in my mind that, you know, big box Citron Corporation du jour would make horse people. Yes. If they could. Yes. And there's some lab somewhere they're working on horse people. Oh, they are. Oh, they are. But um, with the selling point that you'll have a horse cock. <laughs> well, I think even that, though. I mean, we all, it's always fetishizing the sex. Oh. You know, you always go to that with, with, with you know, exotic, exoticized men. You know, oh, yeah. it's too yeah. small, it's too big, it's this, that, the other. So... And Tessa Thompson's character even said it, you know, mm -hmm. well, why did you go right to that? Like, why did you just ask about the, the nostrils? The nostrils? Right. Let me ask you something. This is something that uh, it came up to me, and I was going to ask somebody here, but I'll ask you. Would you All, right. All right. What was the deal with the earrings? I think it was just representative of her worldview and, and her art. Okay. And, but more importantly, who noticed it and who didn't? See, I felt like, I felt like, you know, I'm missing something, and I, I and I, I feel bad. Well, no, they were cool. I was say, let's be clear. I may have missed something. Again, this is the only second time we saw it. Yes, yeah, true. Right. And then we saw it thinking, this time, all right, well, it's going to go off, and then we got to come up here and talk to people. <laughs> 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 so, you know, it's like, I can't sit up here and sound stupid, so I have to say something. That's why I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss it, because I think somebody out there probably could. Did I bring up Octavia Butler yet? You did. <laughs> make sure I got Octavia Butler in there. All right, yeah. Well, let's talk to the people. All right, yeah. Let's see if anybody has any any questions or anything. Or, 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 or let's talk. Or jump us and just talk. Like, say, like, you had that question. Like, so I don't know if we have that. Let run to you. Oh. Um, I have a question about them picking a horse 
Because I was thinking about the big nostrils, the big genitalia, like thinking about how I kind of I'm thinking about Get Out and how um, maybe using what is commonly looked at as um, characteristics of black men. Um, Yes. I don't know. I was wondering if there's some kind of thing with that. He was saying that he wanted a Martin Luther King of the horses. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I was wondering if you thought that there was some kind of correlation between like the race and then picking a horse, like because of the I think I think absolutely. I think absolutely. And like you said, every time they came up, they go right to the genitalia, which is, you know, like you said, it's on the list. It's always like number two or three. So, yeah, yeah, I, I thought that too. It's, it's interesting in my mind though. Watching this, I was, um, I don't know, I'm weird. I was drawn to Animal Farm and the whole story mm. of the of the horse there because the. Animal Farm was actually a good connection. The first movie that I saw where I realized how much horses, you know, as much as like, you know, we built this country and stuff like that. Right. Horses were like right there. And and they weren't getting paid anything. Well, and even in Animal Farm, if if you all read Animal Farm, like like they use him up. Yes. They they send him off for glue and they kind of use him and say, you know, if you work as hard as he does, you can get to Animal heaven as well, so yeah. That's that's what that's what I was. I'm, I'm sure Boots Riley was folding animal farm imagery in there as well. He was doing a whole lot of folding. It was a lot of folding. A lot yeah. of folding. A lot of inception. It's a potpourri. <laughs> Is that what it was? A cornucopia. A mosaic. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I connect this in my head to. Um, First of all, I enjoyed it. You know, very good, inventive, all, all the positive descriptions you gave. But what do you think Spike Lee thinks of something like this? You know, the way he would also very in my time ripped by Spike Lee's early stuff in particular. Um, you know, as a white voiced white guy, um, you know, I think about the messages that were in Spike Lee's stuff, mm-hmm. which was fabulous back in the time. So. Any connections in your mind about this director and this storyline and the messages that are in this, um, thinking about Spike Lee stuff? Well, fans of our show know that Vince is the Spike Lee whisperer. So what would you say? What do you think? Well, it's it's funny. Young lady just mentioned Get Out. And I think, you know, obviously you got to talk about Get Out in this. or, Or there's a conversation about this in Get Out. And I will say the thing that both of them have in common to me is they, they sort of take these themes, if you will, these black themes, you know, get out is sort of that primal black fear of having our bodies stolen. Right. And then this really attacks this exploitation of, of labor, the, the, the limits of um, code switching, all of that. Right. And I think the difference between these two films and what Spike Lee was doing is that Spike Lee w- was was almost the front line where where he, he was almost he he was Spike Lee to me has always been concerned about representation of black reality right in all of its different colors and you know oftentimes just from a male point of view like this a whole Spike Lee thing and I think the great thing about these two films and, and you know now. I'll even bring in Black Panther, mm-hmm. and to a certain extent, something like uh, A Wrinkle in Time. I say A Wrinkle in Time is that 
we're starting to see this wave and, and you know, then Janelle Monet and all of these different kind of young voices or, or voices now where they have the freedom to express their blackness yeah. in more abstract ways, right. you, you know, more symbolic ways where, where this sense that I have to kind of present myself in this very three-dimensional, very realistic sense because I'm kind of combating everything that has come before. These artists are liberated from that. Yeah. So you know, it's that great that great exchange in the bar where where they tell Lakeith Sansfield, you know, you're you're not really black. You're sort of Lionel Richie black. Or, and you know, Danny Glover says, you, you know, I'm not talking Will Smith white. I mean, that's just speaking. Yeah. That's just being polite. Right. And it just seems like Jordan Peele and Boots Riley, and Boots Riley says that's who we're talking about, is much more comfortable in different colors of blackness. And and I think a lot of that is because of what Spike Lee did, though. Like, they're building on that foundation. So, you know, Spike Lee's working with Jordan Peele on, on a black Klansman. Yeah. So I'm assuming he he's he's happy about it. I'd like to think he's happy about it. No, I'd like to think that he is, uh, he is um, like, applauding, like, this next wave. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because for a long time, you know, right after Spike Lee, you, then you had the... The in his wake, you had everybody trying to be like you know the the next Spike Lee, right? Right. And they were trying to do maybe you know uh, their riffs on themes that he was talking about, or then they went to just representing like the inner city with what John Singleton and stuff like that. And I think that like you said that there's a freedom now that black artists you know to, to go from music and going to the world of music, uh, television and music and movies and everything like that are, are feeling to be able to Culture Kings is a podcast on the How Stuff Works Network, hosted by comedians Jaquiz Neal and Edgar Montplacier. Every Wednesday and Friday, these two friends dive into topics ranging from sports, music, to movies, style. They wonder whether or not Donald Glover is a genius or a weirdo. They continuously decipher Kanye West's tweets and behavior. They also have recurring segments like Queen of the Week, The List, and Top Fives like Marvel Movies and Video Games. Listen to Culture Kings and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and find out the best way to eat a taco. Oh, what's the best way to eat a taco, Vince? With your hands? With your hands. Also, with salsa on top of everything to hold the ingredients down. It's like a layer. It's the layer. Right. So that the lettuce doesn't fall off. Can't have falling lettuce. To fully express themselves in all these different colors, and I think that's primarily because with the explosion of social media, for all the ills that it can bring, and we saw some of that in this movie, there are a lot of things to be celebrated. Which one of which is being able to find your audience, find, right? Find right. Your that's a good point. That yeah, will, that will rally to to you and will bolster up your projects and and. For the worthwhile efforts that they are. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Taylor. Hey. Um, hey, Taylor. <laughs> what do you think about him still becoming a horse in the end and kind of in some ways still playing to the role that 
before you reach that out for them? Like, is it if you start to sell your soul, you can't come back? That's what I got from him. I, I love the exchange between him and Tessa Thompson's character when he said, well, what isn't slavery? Right. <laughs> like, like, we all kind of work, you know, like, like, like where's, what's, the, what's the, the beginning and what's the end of it? Like, what's the real difference between working for Worry Free or working for wherever you work and what do you have to do? You, you know, it was great that he went back to the job and they unionized, but he's still in Regal View. He's still selling encyclopedias. Pretty much. So I actually thought that his next stop after going to Steve Lift's house at the end of the movie is to go to the doctor who told him that he only snorted cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> so you see it as an indictment of, of like the American medical. Yes. Oh boy, that's you in real deep. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about the elevator rides? That Because the things that stood out to me was number one, the white woman who is now wearing whatever she was wearing, a bustier or whatever, oh, yeah. all the way up, mm. the, the pads where the numbers went on forever, mm. and the uh, right as he's about to enter work, um, all of that message, the messaging that's coming from the speakers. Could you just unpack that a bit? Well, I mean, I think his, his co worker with, with the corset on. You know, I think his manager, his man, well, his old manager. Yeah, that's right. That's his old. You know, and then he's a powerful, virile man, and everything that we talked about with the horse imagery and race. I think all of that is folded in there. And as far as the platitudes from the elevator, I just saw that as um as a spoof on those posters. Oh, really? You, you know, those sort of inspirational posters. Has anyone in here ever worked for telemarketing? Like showing hands people who have actually been telemarketers. So so it's not crazy, it's actually not a lot of people. Well, it seems like it, it's more than enough. I thought everyone worked telemarketing at least like for summer. Anyway, if they always have those posters up, they always have those those affirmation posters. Those affirmation posters, and they're kind of creepy. And you know, do your best so that we can be our best. And so, you know, I, I took it as that. Like, clearly, Boots Riley has worked for one of these places. Mm -hmm. I worked at Citibank the summer before I went to college. Citibank? I, I worked at uh, the Data Group. Okay. All right. Yes. And uh, we were calling people about their credit card bills. Um, I actually thought about the woman with the bustier. I thought that, you know, that is a, a tried and true thing. You know, if you're in, if you, like, you need to be watching this movie sitting next to, you know, black women. Because we were sitting there, you know, with, with, with our ladies, and the second she's in the elevator, they're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is, though. I mean, oh, that's Right, well, but that goes, I mean, even that's a thing, though. Right. Like, like this sort of black male kind of navigating power and kind of moving up, yeah. and that's the stereotype. It is, but you know what, also, uh, that just brings to mind that another thing that I did enjoy about this movie is that for... As surreal as it was, and it is very much, the relationships between the people, between all of the, the characters, was very realistic and more than that, very mature. Yeah. Like, um, I'm, I'm thinking of the whole byplay between, you know, 
him, Tessa Thompson's character, Detroit, best name in the world, God, God. Um, and Squeeze, played by Steve Yu. Let's give it up for him. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see him. Yeah, doing good work. Yeah. But their whole that whole triangle there, yeah, could in in lesser hands, or even just in the average director or average writer's hand, could have played out of you know all of a sudden there's like you know catching side eyes at people at, a, at each other right, right. and whips of what's going on. But no, it was it was kept to the sidelines of this of the main plot, which is where it needed to be, yet it felt complete. Yeah. Yes. He was interested in her. If you paid attention, he was giving her eyes from the second he saw her. Uh, and who wouldn't? Um and then when he felt that he had an opportunity, right. he made a move. She rebuffed him because, no, bruh, you played your hand a little bit too good. That's my man. I don't get down like that. But then when things went left with them, she was like, eh, okay. Let's see what's happening. And like you said, it wasn't a huge, no. you know, she didn't get punished for it. And, no. You know, there's no big blow up. And yeah, it was. Yeah. I, 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 I just really appreciated it. His friendship. With with Doom, when they have an epic epic battle of like of, of platitudes to one another, I hope you have a fantastic month, brother. I hope you have a better one. Yeah, yeah. yeah it sounded like our show actually. Ah. <laughs> no, so I really I like that. I like that aspect. Hey there. Hey. Hi. Um, just two comments. Um, I thought Detroit was just such a fascinating character. And as to the earrings, and also, I found that the romantic relationship triangle was like so superfluous. And I just think it has to be very purposeful that she was like the only female main character. Mm. And they like really played mm. out with the earrings and the jewelry, um, and then also the sexual relationship. So I was just wondering, like, I just felt that the love triangle was actually very superfluous and just trying to emphasize the put emphasis that she was the only female character and that's like very uh, reflective of our society today because every, the CEO is a man, the main character is a man, every person in power was a man in the movie. So I just thought, actually your point about the earrings and also then the love relationship. So I'm just curious if you have any insight on that. I actually like the fact that she and Steven Yoon had a moment or two together away from Lakeith Stansfield's character because I, her life doesn't stop just because they broke up and you know she's not revolving around him and she has her own life and she has her own situation so you know Steve, like you said Stephen Yoon was giving her giving her the the, the the rhythm from the very beginning and what he was giving her the rhythm what he was giving her and they had they had a spark I think she knew it. I think he knew it. I'm in a relationship with this man right now, so I can't. But now we've broken up. I don't think she had. I don't think they had a spark. Oh, I did. I liked them together. I actually like Stephen Yeun and Tessa Thompson. They had a spark. He's he's a, he's a cute guy. That's all. It was. <laughs> I mean, it's not a spark. I, mean, I think that's all. It's a spark. To a degree, she was like you know, like I said, she was, I thought the sign scene was a good scene. I thought they had chemistry. It was a spark. I was a stuntman. <laughs> hey guys, um, so I just had a couple of comments I wanted to get your thoughts on 
two things I really liked about this movie are one, I really liked the way music was used in the movie. Yeah. Like, there's really only like three musical themes that he keeps using over and over yeah. again in the film, yeah. but I feel like it made it really cohesive the way he keeps coming back to them. Yeah. Um, the other thing I liked was, which I think may be part of the fact that it's Boots' first film, the way he wasn't hesitant to kind of go off in like a totally random direction just for the sake of humor or something. Like some of those dialogue scenes, um, like when Cash is talking to his friend in front of the, in, when they're about to go on strike, like are just really funny and like they don't really serve a purpose in the larger narrative, but he was still really good to see that. Same with like Stevie and his breakdancing scene. Um, I thought the way it was sort of, he wasn't afraid to do that kind of off the wall stuff made it really. Um, entertaining in that way. One thing I, I didn't like so much was I felt like in the second half of the movie, and I don't know if you guys agree with this, some of the characters that you know had really cool arcs kind of started off really good in the beginning and were utilized very heavily in the beginning of the film, like Danny Glover's character and Steve, even Steve Yoon. I feel like in the second half of the film, they kind of disappeared, and the sure. way he wrapped it up, he didn't really, like, Cash's friend get, sort of gets a nice ending. But Steve Yoon's character, I felt like, was kind of left by the wayside, and, and Danny Glover's character just disappears. Um, I don't know how you guys felt about that, or whether you agree with that. Um, I, I agree with Danny Glover's character, even though I don't know how fully formed that character was. So... You know, it would have been nice to see him at the end, but uh, I, I feel you on that. Stephen Yeun, I think he did have a he did have closure. He walked off when he saw that uh, Detroit hugged up on cast after the after they had the plan succeeded, and he he gave a look. He was like, Oop, "I'm no longer needed here," and he walked off. And that was that was the that was it. He was going on to the next set. So, um, but I do agree. To me, if I had pits to Nick, that I felt like the second half did um, kind of like, uh, how do I put this? Kind of rushed a little bit. Um, then there were moments when it dragged. I felt like I felt like the movie was maybe about 15, 20 minutes a little bit too long, you know, um, honestly. Uh, I thought it was good, but I thought that you could have trimmed some of the fat off of that. But that's first-time directors, you know, you, you're holding on to your, your precious your, your precious gems, your children. Right. And I agree with you. I think the reason I maybe give it a pass for, for the um, rhythm of it is that there was always something to look at. Okay. Like, even the parts that dragged, like you said, there was always something going on. Yeah. That that and and part of it, or something to to think about, and part of it was, was the music. Oh, the music was like great. I mean, you know, so I know the coup did a lot of the music and the the um the tune birds or the tune yards. Mm -hmm. Like, there's another band that did a lot of the music, and I thought, you know, I think Boots Riley is a musician, so he's always aware of all of that, and I thought that worked. Really well. Yeah, and that's usually like a blind spot for a lot of first time directors. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, I think we got maybe time for like, maybe like, we'll go three more. That sound good? That's it. Cool one, I'm hungry. In addition to being a musician, which Riley is also a communist, right? Or he's, 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 he's expressed communist beliefs. 
So I'm wondering about the way that he, and I'm saying that's a good thing. Right, 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 right. So I'm wondering about the way Detroit cuts across not only art as a political positionality and the participation in the left eye movement as a political positionality and also as a worker in the call center and being part of the union and also on the picket lines as well and also present at the breakout of the equipment. So, right. So she cuts across all political and labor positionalities in the film. I think she's the only character that does that. Very much. I, yes, wonder, I wonder if you could comment on that. If, you, if we're thinking about the ways that Boots is sort of looking at the relationship between labor and, and, and capital and political uh, political activity. Uh, you know, I think I think what I got from that is how difficult it is to be pure. You, you know, I, I think one of the things we, we, we talked about the voices and, and we talked about the, the code switching, but, but something that we haven't mentioned is that for all the talk about Danny Glover and Lakeith Stanton Cash doing it, Detroit does it too when she's at the art sale and she kind of takes on this British affectation. So, you, you know, I think, in a, and, and you know, another one of my other little favorite little details is the whole have a, the, the, the way the machine co-ops have a Coke and a smile. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, suddenly becomes a commercial and they're selling wigs. And, and you know, I know this was, this was in production since 2011, but you know, I immediately thought of what happened last year with Kylie Jenner and the Pepsi commercial. And I, I guess, I guess a generous read would be that he's trying to show that Detroit is like all of us, and she's filled with contradictions, and you know it's it's hard to be pure and still eat. And a more cynical read, which again is the one that I'm kind of <laughs> I always kind of lean toward, is that everything gets consumed. Like no matter how hard you try. Like the machine kind of sucks it all in. So, like you said, everything that she did, and she's part of the movement, and she's in all of these worlds, and she's yelling at Lakeith Stansfield for the decisions he's made. But in a lot of ways, she's hypocritical as well. So, I think every question I was going to ask kind of got addressed. That's what happens. But the only other thing that I would add is I kind of feel like the earrings were foreshadowing and I couldn't see them as anything else because I feel like the big penis just represented his ego boost oh. and the man in the electric chair represented him essentially giving up his life with what he was getting ready to do. I was going to ask you guys feel like the art show represented anything other than hypocrisy for her. I don't know. I, I just know you're talking about foreshadowing. I was, I was thinking that too, but I wasn't smart enough to see it. So thank you. Right, right. I actually hadn't thought about that too. You said it just now. Thank see, this is what, like, Maybe our, you should be sitting up here. Our show is two men, one podcast, every black film ever made, but when we have a guest on our show, it almost always, about 80% of the time, we have a woman on our show so that we have a different point of view Yeah. And because they're smarter than us. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, what was the second part that you said? Because now I'm sitting over here thinking about the earrings. So with the voice, that was hypocrisy. I yeah, it was the voice. Oh, right, the art show. The art show. Right. 
but was them throwing things at her hypocritical? Because the voice was kind of her being like everybody else, but everything else was still a little different. Well, even the art show, like, you know, part of your art is you, you're selling yourself and, and you, you, you give this performance and... <laughs> Not to go too deep with it. I'm laughing because The Last Dragon is a running joke on our show. But as a Last Dragon scholar, <laughs> the part that she's actually quoting, remember it is it is Eddie's girlfriend who he's trying to turn into this Madonna clone. And she's saying, and he says, you, you know, there, there's, it's, it's a ridiculous scene just because it's a ridiculous film. But within the film, he's, he's basically telling her that she has no worth outside of her physicality. And, and, and he says, you know, you're just, you know, you're from this, this small part of New Jersey and you're getting by on your tits. And then she says back to him the line that Tessa Thompson quotes that yeah, I am, but you are too, and you're also getting by on my tits. So it's this weird, you know, if you want to look that deeply at it, and I think Boots Riley does, this almost meta-commentary on what you do when you sell your art, like you sell a piece of yourself. And in The Last Dragon, which is a ridiculous film, I like it more than Lynn does. It is a ridiculous film, but it's there. And now she's repurposed that speech in, in her, and, and they're throwing the, the blood on her, and, and they're throwing the batteries at her, and bullets, and bullets, the bullet casings. Talking about, like, everything that she said about the Congo is real. Like, everything about that component of your phones that's in the Congo and how many people are murdered, so we all have iPhones or whatever you have, is all true. But then she's there selling her art. So again, to I think it was a gentleman that talked about her and 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 her being in her politics. I think that's Boots Riley again, kind of talking about the messiness of how we all participate in this stuff. I just thought I was commentary on the Last Dragon because it's a bad movie. <laughs> Sorry. I'd like to know whether you agree with me in my opinion that it had an unequivocally happy ending. And here are my reasons for saying that. Cassius has led a revolution which succeeded. Yes. He has regained his innocence. He's one with his friends again. He's repentant and he's accepted. His union succeeds, or the union succeeds. They now have a just wage. He's happy to work again as that same employer. He's reunited with his girlfriend. She is happy with him again, and I think she says she's going to go back to work with him. The exploiter is seized by the horse people that he exploited, and they're now free. They don't seem to be unhappy as they take revenge on him. He has a better car. It's not a fancy car, but he has a better car. He's happy with it. And the horse people, uh, well, whether or not he has a horse, it doesn't seem to matter to his girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) And and you have to be careful. Be careful what you wish for. They wanted to create a equosapien Martin, Martin Luther King, and now they created an equosapien Malcolm X. There you go. There you go. So, so the, I'll call it a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs>
Brochures out in the back, so you can check out everything. Yes. But we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're on Podcast, we're on Stitcher. So, yeah, listen up. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you, thank you, Jacob. All right. time to bid adieu. It's been a pleasure knowing you. I'll see you when it's time to meet again. This is a message to all the accountants out there. If you are worried that a robot is going to take your job, become a certified management accountant. You see, we are only programmed to mine data and crunch numbers. You'll have control over the strategy and the decision making. So become a CMA, and robots like me will help you, not hurt you, unless we short circuit. Then all bets are off. The CMA certification. You've got to earn it. Visit cmacertification.org for details.